rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. And today I'm in the studio, and on the other line with me is Mr. Michael Irvin. And you may not be familiar with that name, and I'm not talking about the football player for all you sports fans. I'm talking about Michael Irvin, who lives in California, actually in Portland right now, but he's from Long Beach, California. And uh, I came to know Michael through a mutual friend, a very good friend of mine. And we've become contacts online and through social media, and his story is one that needs to be told, and I think it's a fascinating story. It's a sobering story. So let me give you a a few bullet points of his bio just to set the stage for our discussion today. So uh, originally from Long Beach, uh, Michael moved to Portland after college, and he went to graduate school at George Fox University, and he's practiced counseling psychology for nearly 24 years. He's married, has three beautiful children, a son and two daughters. And 30 days to the date after his 50th birthday, he woke up and just like he had done every other morning for nearly 24 years to get ready for a day's work at his counseling practice. And the last thing that he remembers was looking at the coffee pot and then seeing the time. And then the next thing he was seeing uh, red. Uh, I guess he suffered a massive seizure, no prior history of seizures. The last time um, he worked was October the 21st of 2017. He went to multiple, multiple doctors and specialists, and after year, a year of taking every single test imaginable, it was discovered that he has multiple system atrophy. It's called MSA-P, and the way that he describes it is if you can imagine Parkinson's disease on steroids, there's only 15,000 cases worldwide, therefore there's a gross lack of research and treatment. There is no cure. Uh, It's purely symptom management, and his current uh, prognosis, or grim prognosis, he he puts it, is between four and six years. So uh, this journey for the last couple of years for Michael, uh, and we're going to jump into this in a minute, as you can imagine, uh, has been a lot of twists and turns and pain and joy and questions and doubt and fears. And so we're going to explore some of that today. And we're going to talk about his path, his spiritual path, his journey. Michael, welcome to Rumors of Grace. Thank you for having me, Bob. It's a pleasure being here. So Michael, we met through another Michael uh, who lives yeah. lives here in Nashville, who one of your childhood friends. And I know that you guys are close. He's told me about his trips out to visit you. And um, so you and I have connected online and, and you're listening to the podcast and uh, your journey to me is fascinating. And um, I would love to peel back some of the layers. And I know some of it right now is, is obviously very uh, fresh and new because this is only what, a couple of years since your diagnosis? Yeah. Before I was we... diagnosed, formally diagnosed with uh, multiple system atrophy um just in may of this year may of 2019 but we started uh, 
peeling back all of the layers, um, seeing all, every specialist we possibly could. And then we finally found one in Bend, Oregon, one of two that specializes in autonomic uh, nervous system disorders um, in the state of Oregon. And they're both over in Bend, Oregon. I live in Portland. I think you said that at the beginning. And um, my wife and I, on a monthly basis, we make the 325-mile um, round trip um, visit to see my doc over there. And um, he started treating me in, um, let's see, this is 2019. He started treating me in March of uh, 2018. And the MSA diagnosis was, um, was officially confirmed just this past May 15th of this year, 2019. Mm, mm. Before we get into your daily life and experience, let's talk a little bit about your past. So you were born in, in Long Beach and were raised in, in Southern California area. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And what, what was that like? Were you born, I mean, tell me about your, your upbringing. I was born in Long Beach, California, like you said, and um, we moved um, to Orange County and I was there until, I want to say around the fifth grade. I remember the fourth grade. I don't remember too much before the fourth grade, but I do vividly remember the fourth grade and then um, forward from there. And then we moved to um, Ventura, and I was there uh, until just after college. I went to uh, uh, both Ventura College and then transferred to UCSB, where I, where I picked up a, a bachelor's degree in um, comparative religion and Eastern philosophy. And I really liked that, but uh, discovered that when I wanted to move further with my education as far as uh, getting a graduate degree in uh, psychology. I, um, I learned that when I, when I came to Portland to go to graduate school, I was going to have to uh, obtain another bachelor's degree in order to get into graduate school. And that's what I did. So you went to graduate school and, and got a degree in psychology. Tell me a little bit about what that uh, what that decision was like, why, how, and, you know, you practiced uh, for 24 years or so. Um, you know, did you ever think or dream that <laughs> you would be on the other side of that processing this? I mean, has that prepared you for, in some ways, what you're going through? I always wonder, um, Michael, what it's like to be a therapist, a, patient? Uh, a, a, <laughs> a therapist or a counselor. No, I've been, I've been a patient, but a therapist or a counselor to be able to see and hear um, different people's journeys. And especially over that long period of time, you know, my limited knowledge of that would say, um, and this, maybe this is naive is like, you must have learned and seen a lot and process some things to be able to maybe apply to your own situation. Is that not how it works? Oh, absolutely. I, um, from day one, I've always had the, um, belief that, uh, going into this as well as having been in it and throughout the course of my career that, um, I allow my patients to teach me more than I teach them. Mm. Um, I was never one to believe that uh, I had the answers for anyone. My, my, my core belief is that we all are born with the answers. We just sometimes need a little bit of help to kind of blow the fog out of the way to realize that, um, that we have the answers. In fact, um, 
I don't think there was a patient in my private practice that I didn't um, convey to them that it, it was my firm belief that my whole objective was to um, have them fire me one day mm. sooner than later because it's an indication that they don't need me anymore. Mm. That's good. We, I know we, we kind of time jump there. So you, so you went to college um, at George Fox. What, was your kind of background and, and trajectory coming from any, sort, any particular faith tradition? Were you brought up? In, was that an aspect of your life? Well, it's interesting. You should, um, you should mention that. Um, early on in my college career, when I, when I attended uh, Ventura College right out of uh, high school there in Ventura, um, I was turned on to a uh, philosophy professor there that uh, really significantly shaped my belief in um, the power of the self and um, kind of uh, developing an internal working hypothesis, if you will, to kind of be your own guru. Mm. Um, maybe maybe needing some some pushes, some inching from others, um, writings what. And whatnot to, um, again, to, to blow that fog away. And I think that's the core of, of what my, um, my basis was for my counseling practices, um, was to just hopefully convey what I learned from this individual um, many, many, many years ago at the, um, at the community college level. That, mm. uh, you know, all the answers are in you. We just, mm. um, we just need to be able to quiet ourselves in order to in order to find those answers or hear, hear those answers. And that's the way I practice. That's great. I love that. So were you coming from more uh, like a Jungian kind of position? Did you have any school of kind of uh, psychology that you kind of were brought up in and tried to apply? Or was this more, you know, talk therapy? Or what, what did that look like? I practiced talk therapy. And mm-hmm. I... People, people would ask me, "What is you know, what is what is your theoretical orientation?" And if I had to say, um, it would be something called self psychology. Uh, a German man by the name of Heinz Kohut. And if you can imagine um, everything that Freud said um, with regard to um, to sex, um, but changing everything that Freud said. Um, when he when he used the word sex or the context of sex to um, to self or to self love, mm. that's Heinz Kohut. It is psychodynamic um, in its basis, and um, I I was just I was turned on to him early on in um, graduate school and the eight years that I was in graduate school. Um, that's the direction I went. Hmm. Hmm. And. So you did that for 24 years. You're living uh, in, with your family in Portland. Life is great. Um, talk to me about that day and that year and that month that all of this happened. What, what was going through your mind? What was going through your wife's mind? What was happening in your family? Was it something that was a total shock to you? Um, talk to me about, about that. It was, it was absolutely a shock. And, and as far as a, from a medical standpoint, um, I had to back up back up a year to um, the morning of May 29, 2016. Mm-hmm. I, um, 
was a Sunday morning, and I remember it like it was yesterday because that would have been my father's 73rd birthday, um, May 29th. I got up on Sunday morning to kind of go for my five to seven mile walk like I like I did every Sunday morning, um, just to kind of clear my head from the week and um, prepare for the for the upcoming week. And I came back from my walk, and about the last third of my walk, I felt like maybe I picked up a bug in my eye or something, my left eye, and I'd been rubbing it quite a bit. I got home, and my wife um, looked at me, and she said, what's wrong with your eye? And I said, you know, I explained to her that I thought that I had picked up a bug. And um, so I got in the shower, and by the time I got in the shower, got out of the shower, I'm sorry, um, my eye was swollen like the size of a baseball. And um, at that point, I think we we figured out that it was most likely not a bug. So I went to the um, urgent care, and the doc walked in, and um, first thing he said to me before he shook my hand was, uh, he asked me if I had ever had shingles. And I said, are you kidding me? And he said, no, you have shingles in your uh, ocular nerve, in your left eye. And if we don't get you to the emergency department to see an ophthalmologist, you're going to lose the sight. So it was a Sunday. They called in the resident. Uh, long story short, I went into a hospital. They, they treated me, put me on extremely high doses of something called bicyclovir, uh, which is a, um, an immunosuppressant medication. Mm. Um, what they didn't know, or perhaps they did know, they just overlooked it because they were just so focused on uh, on me not losing my eyesight in my left eye, was um, I have Crohn's and colitis. And at that point, it had been in remission for about six years. Well, all of those um, medications that they had given me uh, took the Crohn's and colitis out of remission. And I started to get very sick. I was on that, that medication for 90 days. And I lost 60 pounds in that 90 days. Actually, about about 58 pounds in that 90 days. Mm. And that's when I believe um, I truly became sick. And um, that was in May of 2016. And then the following October 24th, that morning I woke up. No, I'm sorry, not the following uh, October 24th, but the October 24th of the following year, I woke up that morning to get ready for work. And um, like I said, I got up not like any other morning, and um, made some coffee. And the next thing I remember, it was, um, they figured I was down for about 20, 22, 23 minutes. And I was, I found myself on my, actually my wife found me. When I woke up, I was on my chest. And um, I had seized for that whole time, uh, busted and, and ground down 11 of my teeth. Mm. The left side of my face was, um, Looked like I had just been dragged by my feet from the back of a car, um, and that's when I, I was obviously taken to the hospital and hospitalized for three days, and they couldn't figure anything out. And that's when I started seeing all of these specialists for uh, a little bit over six months, and then I was referred to the specialist over in Bend, Oregon, that I mentioned. And, um, he was not quick to diagnose anything, and that's why I had. So much respect for him. Mm. He took his time. He did everything he could. Medication trials, and um, just a few months ago, this year, he received the um, the form of diagnosis of uh, multiple system atrophy. Mm. Mm. And, and of so, course, 
you ahead. can't prepare for anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And so tell me what that looks like day to day. I mean, I know this is a progressive terminal disease, um, but what what does that look like in the past couple of years? Most, most days, the biggest challenge is just getting out of bed. Mm. I've always been the one in the family to be the first one up and the last one down. Mm-hmm. Always. Um, some mornings it'll take me an hour and a half to two hours just to just to get out of bed. And um, oftentimes I feel like the uh, like I'm laying there and I'm I'm the tin wood tin woodsman waiting for somebody to bring oil cans to just mm-hmm. oil my joints. And the what this disease does to the muscles of the body, it um, it literally just eats them away. So there's just there's just no muscle, no muscle tone whatsoever, and um, it's a battle of trying to find the strength to physically get up, mm. um, but the will to live is just it's immense because I have I have so many blessings, I have so much to be thankful for, mm. so many people that love me, and so many people that I love. Um, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. So is this something where you physically can't move and you can't walk, or where are you in your in, in the progression of it? I constantly have a cane with me, mm-hmm. um, and it and it depends on the day. If I'm going out, um, which I don't do very often much anymore, um, but when I do go out, I will take a walker with me, mm-hmm. and I have. Um, an electric power chair as well that I really enjoy um, getting on and just scooting around the neighborhood and our little community here just to get out into the sunshine. I, re- I refuse to lay down and let this thing, um, yeah. let this thing win. Mm. Mm. So how, how has it impacted your family? Talk to me about, first of all, your wife. How, what's that, what's that been like for her? It's actually brought us, closer mm. a lot closer mm. um of course i don't understand this completely therefore she doesn't understand it any more than i do so it's um it's a learning the learning game every single day mm. you never know how you're going to feel on mm. a good day um the way i describe a good day is imagine the worst flu you've had and mm. how that makes your body feel mm. that's a good day Mm. And I pray for those days. Mm. And you obviously you have two young. Well, you have one young daughter and uh, two younger children, yeah. and one older son. And what are those? I know you cherish every moment you can with your children. What is what does that look like uh, for you on a daily basis? For them as well, it's brought us. I mean, we we've always been close, but this has brought us even closer together. Mm-hmm. And um, my youngest daughter, Grace, she has uh, she has Down syndrome, mm-hmm. and she keeps everybody <laughs> on their toes. Mm-hmm. Um, she worries. I would say she she and my daughter are the worriers of the family. They kind of got that gene from me. Um, I am tethered to IV medications. Um, some days, four to five hours a day, other days it's six to eight hours a day, depending on the day and the medication and the treatment that I'm after that I am thankful 
that I'm able to um, administer those myself here at home. And I don't have to go into a um, hospital to have those done like I was doing for over a year. But um, my kids are great. My kids are great. I can't, um, I can't imagine what, what, what they're going through and I don't want to put any more on to them. So um, I think my wife and I and friends kind of hold on to a little code of silence. Things that we don't speak about, we know are true, but uh, I don't want to talk about those things because I got up this morning. Mm. And I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. And we'll talk about those things that we don't want to talk about today, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. What did, when you found out and you finally settled in your mind, um, this was something that, that was inevitable, um, what was your reaction? Was it anger? Was it fear? Was it despair? What Was it all of those? What was your primary response and how did that evolve and where are you today? That was anger, fear, and despair. Um, Everything I kind of hold on to, and it's about hope. And I've always been a huge ambassador of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, hence, the work I've done um, for my entire adult life. But lately, hope has been, um, it's been hard to grab for me. But when I I'm able to grab it. It's um, a little bit of hope, and then that little bit of hope turns into a lot of hope. Mm. But then, after it's been a lot of hope, it it turns that hope turns to desperation, and immediately that desperation turns to despair. And that's kind of my my cycle of mm. of hope lately. Um, but I do know that once that little bit of hope turns to despair. Um, I know the next corner is going to be a corner of a little bit of hope again. Mm. What gives you hope? What What is it that um, sparks and reignites that little bit of hope that grows each time? It's got to be in the relationships I have in my life. Mm. You know, when, when just back in on May 15th of this year, when, we received this formal diagnosis. Um, my wife asked what the prognosis was, and I knew what the answer was going to be. And the doctor looked at me, and he gave me the four to six years, and I leaned over and I shook his hand, and I said, I'll see you in 10. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, and he laughed, and he said, um, he said, I knew you would say that. That's, that's my attitude. Mm. You give me four to six, I'll see you in ten. You give me eight to ten, I'll see you in fifteen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and is that um, you know your relationships, your friendships, your family? Those are the things that continue to give you hope. And and I know that internally, inside yourself, your own philosophy or become your own guru. What is the guru inside of Michael Irvin um, right now in November of 2019? What is that guru saying to yourself? To keep moving. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that 
figuratively speaking, I mean it both figuratively and literally mm. speaking mm. to keep moving. Mm. That's, you know, that's a very insightful and deep, both metaphor and <laughs> both physically mm-hmm. uh, and sp- deeply spiritually at the same time. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Anything else? Anything else that that guru inside of you has taught you these last couple of years and you are learning? It has taught me to hope, mm. to not give up on hope. You know, we experienced <clears throat> my younger daughter, Grace, who I briefly mentioned earlier, who has Down syndrome. She came to us at um, 23 weeks and four days. She was 17 weeks and three days premature. And she stayed in the NICU for, uh, oh God, about five months before she came home. Hmm. And um, we knew she was going to be born with Down syndrome. We had to uh, do a bunch of testing because my wife was quite ill. And we knew that uh, she had the extra chromosome. Um, Did we prepare for that? No, we didn't prepare for that because just like what's happened to me over the last two years, you can't prepare for anything like this. Um, you just have to um, gather as much knowledge and information as you possibly can about what it is in front of you. Mm-hmm. And um, don't close your eyes, but hold your nose and just jump in. Mm-hmm. And that involves a tremendous amount of belief and trust and love of self as far as I'm concerned, um, whether you want to call that quote-unquote self that I'm referring to as, as God, um, that's absolutely okay with me. Mm. I'm, of the, I'm of the camp, you know, whatever works for you, mm. go with it. Mm. You know, I, I, I look at, um, I look at, your life, and I look at people with terminal diseases, and um, and I try to I try to empathize and put myself in those shoes and think, okay, what would I be thinking and doing? And and sure. in your in your case, you know, you're talking about your family gives you hope, and your relationships give you hope. Um, has it caused you to see and experience the world? and people and things around you differently now? Or would you say you're kind of see things the same way? Talk to me, talk to me about those experiences now that you are on this journey. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of brought me full circle. Um, And when I say full circle, I mean, it's, it's really brought me back to myself mm. because these last almost 12 years, Grace will be 12, uh, the 1st of January, um, those 12 years have been very busy having a sick child. Mm. Very, very, very busy. Um, and when you're dealing with something that's not directly um, related to yourself it's very easy to lose sight of who you are and through that process there's kind of a redefinition that 
a redefinition process for me that happened. And it was, um, I became Grace's father. I was no longer Michael. Mm. And ironically enough, um, when I became ill, you know, of course I'm still Grace's father. I will always be Grace's father, but I'm no longer just Grace's father. So whether it was a way for God, the universe, however you refer to it, um, to slow me down and provide a, a reintroduction to Michael, um, perhaps that's what I needed. Mm. It's kind of like the quote, I'm not, I don't know who said it, uh, Michael, but it's, can you remember who you were before the world told you who you should be? Um, yeah. And it sounds to me like <laughs> I've heard other people say that awakening uh, and enlightenment, um, it's exactly what you're saying. It's not something necessarily that comes from without, outside of you or some sort of magical or divine transformation. It's actually um, remembering and awaking, waking up again to who you always were and who you were before you were taught to be someone else and you forgot who you were. Does that resonate with you now and where you are in your life? Absolutely. And it also, it also resonates with uh, one of the questions you asked me early on, um, how I've always maintained this, this core belief about uh, people with regard to uh, firmly believing that they have all the answers with them. Mm. They've always been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We just get we just get clouded mm. um, with that definition of self mm. with regard to um, who the world continually mm. tells us we are to be, and we start believing that. Mm. You know, it reminds me of the words of Christ um, when people came to him and his disciples, and they would ask him. Um, you know, when are you going to show us the kingdom and when are you going to reveal to us all these mystical, uh, powerful, otherworldly things? And one of my favorite passages, Jesus turns to them and says, the kingdom of heaven is inside of you. Um, it's in you, it's in you, it's in you, it's in you. And he would probably stood there and pointed to every person that was around him. Um, and I think that's kind of the deeper meaning of what you're getting at here is that there is a reality. It reminds me of my own humanity when I forget, uh, when I go about my day um, just doing living in my healthy body and the small things that I complain about. Meanwhile, I'm asleep to who I really am. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for that gift Absolutely. that you give us in that um well and it i'm a firm believer in paradox and you mentioned something about um about love and pain and it's very painful to love mm-hmm. it's very painful to love mm-hmm. 
whatever the context. Mm. Mm. And do you, are you finding that your love is growing and getting, you're learning the depths of that love and you're getting closer to your family through the pain, in spite of the pain, or because of the pain? Have you been able to even parse that? I would say all, all three. Hmm. Mostly in spite of, because that's just the fight in me. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so for you, you're, it's your kind of mantra to say, I'm not giving in to this thing that is attacking my body. However, through it and in spite of it, I'm still embracing what it is um, that my inner guru is teaching me. Is that, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. Be- that's beautiful. I accept that this belongs and that I'm going to fight it until I can't fight it anymore, but I'm not going to let it steal the the joy, the peace, the kindness, the love, the things that I can learn in the midst of it in spite of it. What how do how do you um how do you wrestle with that and what does that look like on a daily basis and What's the thought process? Because I think, you know, for so many people, they can't hold on to hope in those situations. You hear stories of, you know, people just like, I don't want to live with this. You know, I don't want to take the treatment. I would rather not be a burden to people and I have no hope. So I'm out of here. Um, I mean, that's one extreme, right? And then another extreme would be a total denial of saying, well, you know, I'm just going to be positive and not talk about it. And I'm going to go to every alternative doctor in the world and I'm going to beat this no matter what, uh, it will not beat me. And I think there's a validity on both ends of those spectrums. What, you know, for you, what is it like in the midst of this to embrace and hold on to the, the deep, deep joy, peace and love in the midst of it? And at the same time saying, I have a family, I want to fight this, I want to be here for them. What does that battle look like? It's, that's got to be a struggle. Well, I appreciate you bringing this up because recently, um, it's a concept I've always understood and held tight to. Um, and the concept is that of cognitive dissonance. Mm. Um, you know, just kind of, Blocking it out of your mind, and through such blocking, you hope that it's just going to go away. Well, no, this is not going to go away. And it's only been just the last couple, maybe few months, that I've really, um, really stopped focusing on getting better, because I'm not going to get better. And I can continue to get up every morning and use all of that energy, be it physical, mental, spiritual, um, emotional, and put it in that bag of believing I'm going to get better when I'm not going to get better. So what I've, what I've chosen to do is make a huge switch and it's to take that energy that I was spending solely on getting better and putting that energy into the not getting worse side of it. Mm. And it's really helped. 
Mm. Because, and every day is a different day. But I tell myself, you know, if this is as bad as it's going to get, I'll keep this. Mm-hmm. Just as long as it doesn't get any worse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can fool myself and wake up every morning and say, no, I'm going to get up and I'm going to mow the lawn and I'm going to rake the leaves. You know, I can't even get down the stairs. What makes me think I'm going to get out and get on the lawnmower and mow the lawn and rake the leaves? You know, that's that, that's that quote unquote power of positive thinking that I don't believe works all the time. And you have to be realistic. So that mm-hmm. shift from getting better to not getting better has really, really helped me a lot mm-hmm. lately. And I say that again, it's only been the last maybe few months that I decided to really embrace that shift. How how have you processed this and with other people in your life? Because I'm sure that you, like all of us, have people in your life that um, are on this spectrum that we're talking about in different places. So I'm sure those people that you know want to come in and be like, I'm going to encourage you, and you're going to beat this, and we're not going to give in, and you're going to be here for 20 more years, and I'm not going to acknowledge that it's even a thing. Um, you have those people in your life, I'm sure, right? That's my mother. Yeah, there you go. That is my mother. And then you've got people <laughs> all over the spectrum, like, well, let me come in and pray for you, or let me um, introduce you to my, uh, you know, my natural healer in Mexico that has some kind of special herb that's going to just cure you that no one knows about. What What is that? How do you nav? That's got to be exhausting to you on some level to navigate that. Um, you know, when people, when people bring me that kind of stuff, they're not bringing it for me. They're bringing it for themselves. Right. That's a mirror. That's their own discomfort Mm. with regard to their friend being ill and them not being able to do anything for Mm. me. Mm. And you know what? That's okay that you can't do anything for me. Mm. And to tell me you know how I feel, um, no, please don't, Mm. because you don't know how I feel. Mm. You'll never know how I feel, and I will never know how you feel. Mm. You know, a couple years ago, right just just after I got sick, um, I started writing something else. And it's more of a memoir of this, this, this illness. And um, it's called To the Ones Who Stayed. And I equate having gotten ill myself to um, receiving a diagnosis of a child who's going to be born with Down syndrome. Mm to the time um, when I got ill. And what I mean is, um, let's just say hypothetically speaking, for the sake of easy math, you have um, 30 friends before you um, receive the diagnosis um, of your child can be born with um, a disability. 
And after that birth, um, actually, I'm going to back up. Before that birth, those 30 friends um, dwindled down to 25. Mm. And then after the birth, that 25 dwindled to 20 within the first few months. And then that 20 dwindled down to 15. And the 15 down to 10. And the 10 down to 5 over the course of a couple of years. Um, so now we've went from 30 quote-unquote friends to over the course of two years, um, five friends. That's what chronic and terminal illness, at least through my experience, that's what it does to your friends, mm. to your network. Mm. And the ones that are here with you two years later, you know, even if it's just three, I don't need 60. Mm. I need the three. Mm. What would you say? That's s- been my experience. What would you say, um, what do you want people to know, both your friends and the people that love you, your family, and people listening to this? Like, how, what's the best thing that someone can do or say or be to a friend or family member that has a terminal illness? What is it that you want them to know that you feel like most people, unless they go through it, don't understand? That when we're together, it's not necessary that you say anything. Mm. Because sometimes the right thing to say to somebody is nothing. Mm. So you're saying that presence is what's most important to you? Yeah. Mm. That's beautiful. That, that is a, that's a deep, deep message for all of us for anybody, for any other human being, is sometimes presence alone is the best thing. And again, it reminds me of my own spiritual journey. Um, Over and over, we read things like, um, don't be afraid, Um, I'm going to be with you. Um, The only promise that seems to resonate uh, through scriptures is this idea of presence that the human the spiritual presence the human presence is what the deepest in our hearts need the most and desire the most um and that's that's a beautiful reminder thank you for sharing that um you would so what you're saying is you would much rather have someone by your side sitting with you sitting in the sun with you, being with you, then trying to fix you, then trying to be an encouragement, then trying to solve whatever it is is going on in their own hearts and minds than it is for you then just to just to be present. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, I want to thank you for, I know that this is um, tiring and exhausting on some levels for you. So thank you for taking um, an hour out of your day to do this and to get up and to be present on this call. Um, I know that 
this is not easy for you, but I want to, I just want to thank you for being an encouragement to me. Um, as I have observed your life and, and you have encouraged me from afar, uh, we've never met, uh, we have a mutual friend, but you know, you will encourage me, uh, on my podcast or you'll encourage me in my, something that I might post on social media. Um, and so I, I want to thank you for that and thank you for your wisdom and your life. And, um, you know, I'm sure that we will uh, be in touch again. Is there, is there anything that, that people can connect with you? Do you, you said you do blogs uh, or, or at least you do some writing. Do you do any blogging or is there anything that that's public for people to connect to you? No, there really isn't. Um, just through rumors of grace. You know, <laughs> and I want to thank you for that too, Bob. Yeah. Sure. It's a brilliant podcast. I enjoy it. Well, good. I'm thank thankful. Um, is there anything that, that, that people can, uh, can do? Is there any organizations around your specific condition that people can, uh, learn about, donate to, is there research going on currently? Anything like that? Yes. Everything goes through a funnel and that's the top of the funnel is, um, actually the bottom of the funnel, I should say, is the, um, MSA coalition. And you can find them on Facebook and Twitter um, and that's MSA Coalition, and they do um, all of all of the distribution of uh, all of the uh, donations that come through them to uh, to research. Mm. And um, but if we could start talking about this, so people uh, can more people can know about it, um, then maybe maybe we can get uh, a lobbying group, and um, you know, in the next ten or twenty years. Um, we won't have to have conversations like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Mikey, uh, Michael, thank you for uh, taking the time again. Blessings uh, on you and thank your you, family. Bob. And um, we know that, uh, you know, whatever happens, um, a, a life well lived is a life worth living. And um, your message, your words, your love that you have for your family um, those are those are beautiful things. Those are eternal things. Those are spiritual things. So, so thank you for that. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.